welcome to the Helix Roundtable. I'm Edner Session, the director of the uh, center. We met this. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, I'm Edner Session, the director of the Helix Center. As soon as I finish it. <laughs> He's not connected. I can start. Uh, we met today uh, uh, in our executive committee board and discussed the programs for next year and essentially selected a number of them that we will be uh, organizing. And so as soon as we have uh, polished it and completed it, uh, I will make sure that they're on the web, on our website, so that ahead of time you know what are the programs that we will be having for the year. We will not have all the participants yet, but you'll certainly know the subject matter. Today's roundtable was proposed by a member of our uh, executive board, uh, Ellen Gilbert, who is a librarian and a journalist. And she will introduce the participants and then make sure that the roundtable runs smoothly. Thank you. Thank you, Ed, and welcome everybody. Thank you for coming. The topic this afternoon is living in difficult times. And I almost thought that we would have to cancel the whole thing because the first thing that I brought up on my email this morning was an announcement for The Economist. They have a special edition on the world ahead, 2023, eight ways the world will change in 2023. So there you have it. In the meantime, the daily headlines were startling and scary from the start. U.S. life expectancy plunged in 2020, especially for black and Hispanic Americans, reported the New York Times. Quote, the pandemic has made homelessness more visible in many American cities, unquote, noted The Economist, while The Guardian told us that, quote, the latest U.N. report is clear. Climate change is here, it is a crisis, and it's caused by fossil fuels, unquote. The pandemic, violence against people of color, mass shootings in public schools, and the war in Ukraine have all made for a dispiriting time in our lives. Almost three years later, our heightened state of anxiety shows no signs of abating. On one recent day, New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd suggested that, quote, the world is too scary, politics is too creepy, unquote, and quote, horror is too real, unquote. While her colleague David Brooks wrote about, quote, the rising tide of global sadness, unquote. In that same issue, the announcement of Elon Musk's $44 billion deal to buy Twitter surely engendered its own kind of unease about the way we live now. 
This roundtable discussion will consider the ways in which people in science, politics, the arts, and everyday life have rallied individually and in groups to meet the challenges of this particularly difficult time. We have a remarkable group of panelists this afternoon. I'll introduce them in alphabetical order with brief descriptions of their work. There's much, much more to say about each of them, of course. Their complete biographies are available online. Please raise your hand so we can recognize you. John Chun is the founding co-director of KDH Lab at Kenyon College, where he has created the world's first human-centered AI curriculum and has mentored hundreds of projects. He is currently writing on explainable AI for a special issue of the International Journal of Digital Humanities. Professor of Humanities and Comparative Literature, Catherine Elkins, is director of the Integrated Program in Humane Studies at Kenyon College. She writes about the age-old conversation between philosophy and literature and the more recent conversation between AI and the humanities. Farzad Mahoutian, who is clinical associate professor of global liberal studies at New York University, has an interdisciplinary background with degrees in both philosophy and chemistry. His research focuses on interactions between philosophy, science, and society. Edward Tenner is an independent writer and speaker at the intersection of science, design, and culture, a founding advisor of the Smithsonian's Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation. He is now affiliated with the National Museum of American History as distinguished scholar and is also a visiting scholar in the Rutgers University His Department of History. Stephen Wine, has served at the New York Psychoanalytic Institute as a supervising child and adolescent analyst, training and supervising analyst, and associate dean for child analysis. He is a member of the Center for Advanced Psychoanalytic Studies and a life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. John Williams is an associate professor of English, film, and media at Yale University. His academic work has focused on international histories of Buddhism, technological innovation, and the perceived difference of racial and cultural otherness. Some questions to help guide the conversation. What are the issues and what are the underlying or less apparent issues we should be considering? How are they being addressed and how should they be addressed? Talk about the role of media. Is this time different from the past? Is there a role for public intellectual, intellectuals? Finally, the philosopher Walter Kaufman described existentialism as a philosophy about, quote, dread, despair, death, and dauntlessness, unquote. The basic idea, he believed, is to recognize how treacherous and unknowable your path is, and then to continue on anyway. So where do we go from here? 
would like to start? <laughs> I'll start. Uh, I'll start on um, where the issues are, what the issues are, underlying issues. And so this is going to be just from one one perspective on that. Um, and uh, to encapsulate the whole thing, I'd call it the black hole of capitalism. And by that I mean that whatever innovations are introduced into the world, um, say green, green technology, there's a good one, um, it can't help but get sucked into the the big machine of capitalism, namely uh, that it will be uh, taken advantage of as an opportunity to create a profit. And that pretty much goes for everything. That's a very simple line on what capitalism has to do. It's the old frog and scorpion thing. I'm a scorpion. I have to do this. And so it stings the frog that's helping across the river and they both sink. Um, so that being the case, I keep trying to think of, is there an alternative social mode? Is there an alternative economy that could coexist with capitalism? And I just can't see that it, it could. Capitalism kind of feels like a living organism that has evolved and it's very happy with the environment and how it can use the environment. And so it will just absorb anything that comes along. If that's the case, then, um, we should not be handing over the framing of these big problems like climate to the very same people and very same ways of thinking, I should say, that generated the problem. So if we are unwilling to hand over the framing of the problem to the people, to the ways of thought that created the problem, then what is the alternative? And I'll just end on this point. The alternative would have to be something like non-scientific thinking, non-technological thinking, uh, non-economic based thinking. Uh, that leaves it pretty open. These are all non-words, but um, what we could think about, it's not that those things won't have roles, but they should not be the guiding feature in how to frame the problem. So that leaves it to humanities, for example, to public intellectuals, for example, to really human beings who want to deeply engage uh, with the, the problem. So. It sort of reminds me of that famous quote by Frederick Jameson that it's become easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine a modest change in capitalist production <laughs> in the way that we manage the economy. And I, there's something about the black hole image that generates a kind of singularity to our futurological speculation, that if, if that's the case, that we can only imagine a future that is in some sense overdetermined by global capitalism, then I think that that does limit somewhat the options that we're willing to, to take on. Um, I like that the program asks us to think about living in difficult times. Times is a, a plurality. It implies the possibility of multiple futures that might emerge. And there's a problem with multiple futures because the idea historically of thinking about multiple, multiple futures is coincident with the rise of global capitalism. 
that in some ways global capitalism and particularly the forces generating the climate crisis want to, for us to think of multiple futures as being possible. Because the climate crisis is also a singularity. It's something that, it's a computational model that implies there is a future coming and it's hot and it's fiery. And so I want to formulate the question as saying, how can we imagine multiple futures outside the black hole of capitalism because in a sense that's where people used to think in the 60s it wasn't overdetermined and and thought of as a final solution that capitalism would necessarily be a black hole and the only way to think of things well it's interesting we were just uh, two weeks ago showing our students an altruistic model model so we did an agent model where each agent was altruistic uh, you had different agents in an environment every time an agent encountered another agent it would give it a dollar if it had it and even under these circumstances what happens is you get this emergent power law inequality distribution so if you we, we do this because we teach a lot of humanities students that the baseline condition is not equality even if every agent is acting altruistically so a lot of our students feel disempowered, they feel hapless, they feel like there's no future for them. And so I think what we have to do, it, it starts upstream, it starts with education, it starts educating the next generation to realize that you know, there is a natural condition, there's a natural baseline, there's an aspirational society we would like to build, and if you leave capitalism to its own ends, uh, we will wind up evolving a very nasty, brutish type society. So I do agree. Uh, it, it's funny. There was no capitalism in the program. And yeah, I think independently, all three of us <laughs> from film, chemistry, philosophy, and AI have evolved and realized we're all embedded in this matrix of capitalism that has this irresistible force. I'd like to underline what you said and say some things that are going to upset people a little. Um, just got an email from the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry a few days ago. Um, there, there was a huge, now I can't find it of course. There was a huge study in the state of Illinois over the last few years um, from something like 2015 to 2019, pre-COVID. There was a 59% increase in emergency room visits by kids for suicidal ideation. That's before COVID. Since COVID, there have been further spikes. And there's an article in the Washington Post from a few days ago that said that at Yale, there has been a 90% increase in demands for mental health services by students since 2015. So if you want to know how this is affecting people, one is that a lot of people don't think that they have a future mm. and don't think that they can cope. And I... Um, it's a much more, and there's, it's also the Academy of Child Psychiatry and the American Academy of Pediatrics issued a joint statement that there is a crisis in mental health. Now, one can think of all of this medically that they need services, but I think we all understand that this is coming from something. But it's very serious. I'm curious, what, what do you feel are some of the major drivers of that? I mean, certainly teaching uh, kids at this age, we're seeing it. Um, every day, but what would be some of your ideas about describing that? You know, it's hard to know from seeing patients because they talk about their personal individual situations. And so when people ask me, do you see any changes because of COVID? My reaction is, no, it's just that everybody's worse. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
and everybody's more anxious. And maybe it's because of climate, because a number of kids have said to me very matter-of-factly, humanity won't exist in a few decades. And they're not so sure there is a future for them. I don't know that they think about this all day long. I think all day long they think about whether or not they're popular and whether or not they're, you know, they're going to be rejected by someone they want to go out with. But there's an underlying feeling that things are bad. I also think that COVID has been devastating because of the social isolation that people um, underwent. I heard from a high school student that at his school, when students write anonymous feedback to the teachers about their classes, the, there is a nastiness to their reports that never existed before. And I think if you think about what it's like to go to school in your pajamas in bed, watching your teacher on television, you forget that you're writing about a human being who might be hurt by these statements. And lastly, I think you talk about capitalism. I don't remember 39 years ago kids talking a lot about wanting to make money or being afraid that they wouldn't. And it comes up all the time now. Uh, one kid said, I want to have vast wealth. I said, why do you have to have vast wealth? But this kind of thing, a, a, a much greater awareness of the disparities between rich and poor in a, in a privileged population. Um, and a lot of anxiety that they're not going to be able to make it. So I don't think it's one thing. Um, but it's certainly the temperature is way up. And it's very hard to make a referral to a child therapist these days. Nobody has time. One thing that they're living with that we didn't is the acceleration of social media and the sort of technological extension of themselves into mm -hmm. so many potential, you know, harmful, mm -hmm. mentally challenging situations. Um, I even think that that is partly a symptom of why class evaluations have become so aggressive, is that they no longer think of them as reports to our supervisors, but as reports to each other. Their Amazon reviews, they're speaking to each other about, well, this professor was this way and that. That's been the tone, that I, the shift that I've seen in just in my career as well. But when I think about social media, I wonder about the... There's so much power that I'm evoking here. <laughs> the... Um, no, right, yeah. <laughs> the accelerating power of it to bring everything into the moment, right? Douglas Rushkoff wrote a book called Present Shock, which was kind of a riff on Alvin Toffler's old book, Future Shock, and the idea that real-time media Facebook feeds, everything is an attempt to compress everything into an absolute presentism that makes everything feel like now. Everything is now. But what's curious about that is that in terms of mental health, one of the proposed panaceas is mindfulness, is to live in the now, to be in the present moment, right? To simply occupy the present moment and, and exist, sit with one's thoughts and watch them and not allow the future or historical events to, to, to influence one's mental health. Um, and I find that a really curious dilemma that particularly kids today have to deal with, is that they're told um, technology allows you to be in a kind of condensed, absolute present, and that's what's causing so much anxiety, and yet at the same time, mindfulness practitioners will tell them, just be here now, just be in the moment. When I think, in fact, what really might actually alter the, the conditions of it is to think historically, to think futurologically, to be able to imagine a future that's not so 
terrifying, right? Uh, on, the, on the subject, by the way, you know, the, the feedback actually reminds me of one of the features of our age, which is that there is, there is constant negative feedback. And it's something I've been studying <laughs> in the uh, media, not only in the, the social media, but in mainstream media. I recently reviewed a book on the use of metrics in uh, newspapers, both uh, tabloids and the New York Times. And one of the very interesting things about uh, the measurement of, uh, of reader you know, participation is that, the way I phrase it, uh, enragement <laughs> is engagement. That is, there is a bias toward getting mm. people angry and you know, that thus, uh, I think, promoting anxiety. And the angrier they get, the more they participate. And the more they participate, then other angry people chime in. And so that does become a, uh, a feedback loop. And this is especially true in, uh, in, in social media. Now, I, I have to say that I am, uh, I am maybe one of the few uh, qualified uh, pro-capitalists in, in the room. So, so uh, you can cancel me if you like, but I have to say that, I have to say that uh, straight out. And one of the reasons for that is to see what happened uh, to the uh, socialist regimes in, in large countries in the 20th and, and 21st centuries, how the Soviet Union, for example, treated the environment, how they treated human rights, what's happening in, in China now. So uh, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a total defender of capitalism, quite the contrary, but, but I think there is a need for, uh, for balance. So the, the social media, though, really are exploiting that. And they're also, they're also promoting um, uh, the, the addiction of children, which I, I think is, is, a, is a really, uh, really terrible thing. And this, this also extends, for example, to, um, to uh, online casinos, which are not geared toward people under, uh, under 18, but are certainly exploiting young adults who are not yet really mature, uh, mature judges. So I think that one of the things that we, we've gone through a lot of things, some of which um, you know, might not be uh, easily addressed, but I think one of, the, one of the interesting things is what can be done to break this uh, feedback circuit. I love that, that's great. Going for the breaking of the feedback uh, circuit is, um, that really works in dynamic systems. That's what, that's the point of uh, mm -hmm. uh, manipulation that you can bring to bear. Um, going back one step to what you said, it reminded me, I kept writing notes to myself to add the word consumer capitalism to capitalism, um, which <coughs> really intensifies uh, and alters capitalism. So just as I said, uh, science, technology, these things have to be involved in the next steps. Uh, so does capitalism, uh, I believe, because it is, like I said, it's sort of a natural, it's a naturally evolved um, dynamism in, in the human world. And it's very good at surviving. It alters the environment for its own uh, advantage, like organisms do and groups of organisms do. So it's going to be around. So it certainly has a place. Consumer capitalism has this more malignant thing, like you were talking about, the uh, the uh, promoting addictive behavior in children and uh, doing that in a variety of ways, whether it's acquiring things or just acquiring points. Um, and the problem with that, 
or the beauty of it too, if you're into, I'm going too fast here, generative, uh, what were GANs? I keep. Generative adversarial networks. Adversary, yes. Generative adversarial networks. These are self-learning systems in AI. All of these things and the children, the consumer capitalist approach to children is reward structures. So a lot of AI just functions on getting rewards. All video games function on getting rewards. And uh, that really slants everything. Um, hitting that somewhere, I'm not sure where, would would uh, alter things. It's such a natural thing, though, to seek rewards and get them. Yeah, so. I'm sorry. <laughs> one one really good example is yeah. I, I, at one point when I was writing my uh, my most recent uh, book, I was uh, I was interested in debunking the uh, uh, GPS program Waze, and so I joined Waze, <laughs> and you get points for you know, like every mile you drive and, and so forth. And I, I found myself really determined to become. Royalty Wazer. There was no money in it. You know, there was there was no, no no publicity value. I couldn't list that on my CV. But it was somehow something that I still you know. It's still hard for me to like pass a you know pass a service station without like you know punching in the the, uh, the, the, the price of gas. And so I, I was able to see. I was able to experience myself knowing how absurd it is. I was still able to experience the power of gamification. So I. Can only imagine what it is like for uh, for kids and, and you know for young adults. I, I just wanted to make a disclaimer. I'm a full believer in capitalism. I did startups in Silicon Valley. I was part of that utopian kind of like we're changing the world, we're building the future. And but as I matured and as a technology like escaped from the lab, and for example, AI in the last ten years has become like. It's escaped the gravitational pull of uh, being dependent on federal and, and academic loans, and it's out there in the world making decisions: who gets hired, who gets killed, who gets, you know, the loan, who gets uh, sentence advisory. It began, began to dawn on us that, you know, capitalism is a very beautiful, powerful thing, but un, uncontrolled, unrestrained, it's the perfect psychopath because people don't realize that monopoly was designed in the Great Depression as an anti-capitalist. And the lesson to learn was that in the end, one person owned all the properties and everybody else owned nothing. And so it's why we have regulation, it's why we have food safety rules, it's why we have all of these things to kind of restrain capitalism. And I think our future leaders, you know, people we're teaching today have to be educated with a, with a technological framework that goes deeper to understand kind of where the pressure points are and where is the justice, where is the wisdom from the humanities and our lived experience. How can we inject that, put that into our social media, put that into our algorithms, put them into our news feeds? I'll say one of the problems is um, they're extremely pessimistic. Uh, they feel that these problems are so complex that actually doing anything to affect these complex systems is next to impossible. Um, as a teacher of this next generation, it worries me that they look at us as the ones who have really messed it up. And so there's a kind of skepticism that we might, which I think is somewhat just, uh, that we could possibly help them figure out this mess. And we've also had some of them say, I'm sick and tired of being told, don't worry, you guys will figure this out. Like, your generation is going to take care of this. Um, so I think, you know, part of what we're dealing with are complex systems that are very hard uh, to figure out how to uh, intervene in ways that will actually affect change. 
complex systems in which they feel they may only see a small piece. Um, they're very idealistic, and yet they feel they do not have the tools to make a difference. I also would just say, you know, uh, a little bit what John is saying, looking at the longer view, I do think there is something new in the past few centuries about our rhetoric about uh, we kick the kid out of the house, go make your life, you decide exactly who you are, you can be whoever you want, good luck. Right? And if you think of most of human history, we have evolved to be a part of a tribe, to know our place, to know what our life would look like. And we talk about all the opportunities of making oneself and finding one's way. But as someone who is a scholar of 19th century literature, we see young people in novels by Flaubert and Dickens coming to the city and making their way. And I just want to remind people that many of those stories are extremely dark. Right? Those stories are not all happy uh, stories about how great it is. Right? Um, you know, um, so we have stories in our past about um, uh, stories gone awry, of, of people trying to find their way and finding that they don't find their way, of lost illusions. We know already that this is difficult. And then we couple that with a young generation who may not be able to afford to live in urban areas where they want to live who have to take jobs to make money uh, to kind of even be able to live in these areas. I just think uh, the pressures are enormous. Um, and you know we're teaching students who, in previous generations, might have uh, been able to contribute in ways that would have really benefited society, but now feel the need uh, to make money to pay rent in New York or wherever they want to go. Well, if you graduate from college and you want to live in New York, forget it. You either live with mom and dad, which brings you right back to somebody else doing your laundry, or you move out with 25 roommates deep in the outer boroughs. And, you know, certainly when I was in college, we were told to find your passion and find a way to live, make, make a living doing what you most love. And what happens if you don't have a passion? And I think most people don't have a passion. They just sort of want to get by. And then they're totally lost. Especially, as you say, because people are saying, go find yourself. They don't know what how to find themselves. And it's go find yourself in the context of a society that seems to have evolved to a point where we can't imagine something beyond what we're hurtling towards. Yeah. And I even want to suggest that some of the language we've been using, I feel, is a little bit, almost verges on a religion of capitalism. When we talk about it being an organism, that's something that is just natural to the systems of human growth, that it escapes from the lab, that it's like something that has sort of necessarily evolved from the cosmos. In a way, we're at least rhetorically giving in to the idea that capitalism is this natural force of the universe. And I think that that's a religious idea. It's not something that has always accompanied human history, right? And global capitalism is a fair, in terms of you know, human evolution, a fairly recent innovation. It's a new religion. It's a new religion, exactly. I mean, and if we, if we talk about it in those terms, then I think we're, we're contributing to this, this fatalism that people feel when they're coming into adulthood and they're told to follow your passion, but it's within these very overdetermined structures. Yeah, that's if you believe in the religion, then you have trouble. But Who doesn't, don't believe Who doesn't religion, though? Everyone is sort of, yeah. But what if you don't believe in the religion? That's where the power is. I mean, it's, I, don't, I don't, actually don't understand what you mean. 
because it's not a matter of belief, it's a matter of where the opportunities are, isn't it? Religiosity is a system of structures and rights and behaviors. It isn't necessarily something that one believes, necessarily. It's a, it's a whole ideological system. I, it's I a, think maybe I understand what you're saying is that there's a choice. We can shape our destinies, right. or we can be passive agents being molded like play, or we can actively make choices about schools. All of these things are distortion of capitalism, right? Schools, fire departments, police departments, public roads, mm -hmm. you know, all of these. And we make these compromises in order to have a civil society, one where humans can thrive and survive. And it seems increasingly, I think, maybe I'm interpreting here, when I see religiosity, I do see, like, this is unquestioned. Now, that needs to be questioned because right. we have to realize we live in a society that's constructed of many different choices, an amalgam of religions and cultures and value systems. So I, that's one thing we try to tell our students is don't be so passive. You know, it's it, part of the hopelessness, I think, comes from this, I'm hapless. I, mm -hmm. I have no agency. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I'm alone. And I'm alone. That's the other part. But if you think about it from a game theory kind of perspective, we're in this game, and there's certain rules. And it's uh, not always easy just to say, I'm not going to play the game, right? And so uh, we see it not just with students who are trying to apply to these big colleges and are playing all these games to get to college, and then they're in the next round of the game, right? I mean, you can say you don't believe in it and you don't want to play that game, but figuring out, you would almost need a large number of people to opt out. Mm -hmm. uh, you really can't opt out of the game as an individual very easily. It's very difficult. And it's the individualism in some ways that gets us here. Follow your passion, be an individual. These are forms of neoliberal subjectivity that allow us to, or that force us to approach a social situation and say, it's up to me to find a way to live with this. I'm not part of a collective that is, you know, learning to shape society. I have to develop the forms of self-help and self-improvement and refining my, my soul and subjectivity in a, in a way to succeed in this high-stakes, you know, difficult time. And I think that's, that's part of the problem, is that we're sort of structuring success and subjectivity according to, like, it's up to you individually to change. It's how well do you recycle? That's how well we'll save the planet. Whereas these are actually massive systemic problems that we're dealing with that would require that requires structural change. Right. And I think you know one of my dreams I would hope to see by the end of my life is capitalism is an amazing engine. I don't think humanity has ever created such a system that can just galvanize and and mobilize humanity to solve things um, at such scale. But we have to take reins of that. It's, it's, it's can't be let loose. And I would hope that there's some sort of people coming together, not being so atomized by technology or social media mm -hmm. or political uh, affiliations or whatever it is that's dividing us. We have to come together and kind of cooperate because it will be a struggle. It's, I, I, you know, it's this balance between hopelessness and awareness of how the system is rigged and how we how we write it. And when I say rigged, I don't mean like there's some people twisting their beards in smoke-filled back rooms. It's the invisible hand of capitalism. It doesn't require a conspiracy. It doesn't. It's just a natural force like gravity. It's very powerful. 
we're, um, we're in the middle of a, of a crisis. You raise the word neoliberalism, which fascinates me, because neoliberalism is the only movement that dare not speak its name. That, uh, that liberals, conservatives, socialists, communists, fascists, they, they all uh, tend to describe themselves with, 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 the, with the words that others use. But neoliberals really hate the word uh, neoliberal. And, and uh, even neoconservatives will acknowledge it being neoconservatives. And I think that's, that's part of a crisis. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a crisis of capitalism as such, because when you look at the metamorphoses of capitalism and the metamorphoses into the corporatist world of today, it, it's really been a, a, a change in, a change not only in degree, but in kind. Uh, if you, for example, consider the idea of difficult times. Now, in, the, in 1914, there was a strike in, uh, in Colorado of, the, uh, of, of miners, and the mine was owned by the Rockefellers, and the Rockefellers you know, sent in uh, essentially armed troops to in, engage uh, with, the, uh, with the strikers, and, and you know, many strikers were, were, were killed then. So you, this was capitalism in the early 19th century, and this is, what one of, this is one of the reasons for the Rockefellers establishing a foundation. So you didn't have a, a commemoration of the Ludlow strike. You had all kinds of news of the wonderful philanthropic Rockefellers. And not that today's Rockefellers can be blamed for the, the, the Ludlow strike, but there was, I, I think that the, the turmoil of that period was the beginning of a metamorphosis of capitalism into something like uh, today's corporate life. And what you're talking about, the way people are, are thinking about their future, is really the way that that, that corporations think, including including universities, that, that you, there's a there, there's a very strong parallel in the structure of universities, university departments, what it takes to get ahead, uh, with with the structure in in for-profit corporations. Um, and I can say this I'm, as an outsider, as somebody who went independent 30 years ago and uh, has even been called a public intellectual. That isn't, that isn't a phrase I like because I'm really a private intellectual. I don't get any salary from the <laughs> NEH or, or anything like that. So I'm, 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 like, I'm, I'm a private intellectual. But, um, but, but I think that, that what we've been talking about is really a, a, a loss of legitimacy of a set of institutions that, that seem to be doing very, very well through the Reagan era, through the Clinton era, through the you know, Bush and, and Obama administrations. And now there is a, a almost universal sense of disillusionment without, as, as you were noting, uh, you know, any sense of what could, what could supplant it. Because if you look, for example, at European social democracies, you know, the, the Swedes are letting ultra-right-wing parties into their government. So Sweden was the, you know, Sweden was one of the, the when you pointed to enlightened social democracy, you always thought of Sweden, and now Sweden is suffering from the same kinds of, of stresses that, uh, that that we are, and I don't have a solution, but but I, I think you know that to me that's where that's the, the form of capitalism, the form of, of corporate life, and of course the, the reaction against against higher education is also part of that, and the fact that so much of Donald Trump's support was based in in the in, in uh, among people who did who did not have college educations, and that proved to be the best predictor of votes, which is why the, 
the polls were wrong. So we, we, have a, we have a broad institutional crisis now, and yet there's also the sense that only institutions can deal with climate change and, and, uh, the, and, and, and mental illness and, and all, of the other, all of the other disturbing trends we've been talking about. And so uh, um, I, I, remember, I remember the definition uh, that a friend uh, gave me long ago at, uh, at, in, uh, in, uh, at Harvard. He said, he gave me the definition that, that an intellectual is somebody who believes that one, the world is run by fools, and two, I could do no better. <laughs> Fools, yeah. That's always a good place to start. Right? <laughs> I mean, um, I'm, I'm thinking of, are, are there any Albert Hirschman fans here? I think he was very brilliant and wise, and he used the word possibilism. And he believed that that whatever plans we make, whatever sorry. Should I start again? Yeah. <laughs> we're we're talking about Albert Hirschman and possibilism. I love that word. And he believed that but whatever plans we make, that there should be a hopefulness in them. Um, and possibility and and a sense that that things can change so he had another great phrase by the way the the, the, the hiding hand as a parallel to Adam Smith's invisible hand and the hiding hand I'm sure you're familiar with it the hiding hand is the idea that we start things without knowing how difficult they're going to be if we'd known in advance we wouldn't have started them <laughs> but once we're committed to them we find ways to uh, to get them done, and I, know I can tell you as like as an independent writer that, <laughs> that I, I knew Hirschman, uh, you know, and and, uh, and that that kind of buoyed me up as I was uh, as I was when I was early in the process. That speaks to the power of vision, though, of imagining something that, like you're right, if you had anticipated all of the trials and tribulations of a given endeavor. You may have never decided to do it, but because you had that imagination, you, th you thought, I can see something that I could accomplish here, and you undertake it. And in the process, it's terrible, but you do it, right? And I think that's part of what possibilism is so interesting, is that you, can, you have to be able to imagine some kind of thing, even if you can't find a historical precedent for it. Colorado in the 20s, I guess not. But if you can just imagine something, that seems to be the the powerful path to get onto. Right. Yeah. And it's okay to make mistakes. Right. I think in order to imagine that, you have to have had the experience of succeeding at something. And um, having done something hard and gotten through it. And it can be something very small and individual, or I think we're talking in a much larger context of society. But once you've done something right, you can believe that you could do it again. You know? Mm. And... I think we have to think about that in terms of how kids are raised and how they're educated, that they have to be, they have to experience struggle and success. Well, I think recently everyone's experienced a lot of struggle, whether it's internal psychologically yeah. or external with the pandemic or the news of uh, the shootings uh, yeah. and um, all of the targeting of different um, ethnic groups. It's a huge amount of struggle. Uh, 
that I think, well, certainly all the statistics you cited, uh, young people are not able to deal with that. They feel with it. They, 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 they face it in some ways. But um, it, it makes me want to go to that, that next set of problems, the, the, the polarization, the polarity in our culture today, in our, well, around the world, actually. Um, it comes from, well, let, let's just look at this, this country. <laughs> we have this, this huge uh, uh, right-wing, left-wing thing going on, and uh, the rise of uh, ultra-right-wing, um, uh, white supremacy, that kind of thing. Um, looking at it sympathetically, which uh, I've tried to do a bunch of times, it's kind of like you have to get over a little hump, and then they're just, oh, obviously, now I, just, I can see where they're going. Uh, it's based on a tremendous fear, yeah. which does have an actual basis in reality, um, which is basically that, you know, uh, races mix, and you know, that's basically the fear that's been expressed in every epic going back thousands of years of religious history. Um, forget that for now, but right now, I think the thing that everyone has in common is that fear. So it's the fear of facing the other, and if we just put it in that, in those terms, dealing with the other, the non-self, the non-me, uh, is at the core of a lot of these social problems that we're having. Not the techniques like this is aside from the whole capitalism discussion, but but that's something that has um, a lot of psychological bearing and social bearing. And um, it also is the product of a lot of interesting, therefore, a lot of interesting illusion making and believing. Um, but also, it seems like with some of the interesting psychological tricks that I think people here in the audience and <laughs> in this group probably know, they can be dismantled by some skillful means of um, novels, uh, imagination, fiction, and, um, and some evidence, and just for fun. Um, so that, that um, sort of finding the common core, which is this fear about the future, this fear about this other group, how they're going to just totally mess things up, uh, and a number of other things could be a good uh, starting point for, uh, for a discussion, at least, um, how institutions come into that. I agree that between talking about how we're back to this sort of, it's all on you, it's an individual quest, uh, the hero's quest. Uh, on the other hand, we, we know how institutions can, it's a systemic issue, so it's not an individual problem. But we're kind of bouncing back and forth between those two things, not trusting institutions, being too scared as individuals. Anyway, somewhere in there, there's, uh, there's some work that could be done in that, uh, in that nugget of fear that we share with the other side, whoever the other side is. I'd like to offer a counterpoint because uh, this happens, this is recapitulating what happens in our course when we talk about sin bio and biotech weapons and AI, is that there is hope. I mean, I, I would recalibrate back to when I was a child. The Cold War was hanging over all our heads. We thought we would all be immolated and all destroyed a nuclear holocaust. And that humanity has collectively been able to avert that 
gives me great hope. Um, the fact that, for example, I grew up in uh, Dubuque, Iowa, and they had cross burnings as recently as you know, the uh, 90s, 80s, 90s. I've been back there, and the integration, it's, it, there was, it's much more integrated, it's much more accepting. As bad as it is today, it was much worse when I was in a small Rust Belt town <laughs> in the 70s growing up. And so I think it, you have to give humanity credit. I mean, it's the only thing that gets you up in the morning, right? That there is hope. And I think sometimes we have to kind of balance out our, because that pessimism, that, that, that weights of all the world and how bad things are going can lead to passivity and inaction and resignation. And that's something we have to fight mightily against, I think. I would speak to this polarization issue as well, which I think is extremely important right now. And part of the reason why it's difficult to be optimistic about things is just how siloed people are in their media theoretical bubbles, right? We used to think that the internet and all the sort of the rise of blogs and all of these ways of disseminating more and more information would make information free. We would all be able to access the same thing, and we do, but the algorithms that generate the anger are the ones that keep us in these feedback loops where the anger accelerates and accelerates. And one of the things that I've noticed that's so dangerous about, for example, Fox News, is that they've perfected the art of what in rhetoric is called the prolepsis. The prolepsis is that part of an argument where you anticipate in advance objections that will come from the other side. And part of their rhetoric is to sort of prepare their audience or potential evidence or objections or things that they'll know, they know that their audience will encounter so that when someone who watches religiously a show like that can come and to speak with someone and as they're speaking, they're not really listening. They're preparing in advance the thing that they're going to say next. And so whatever logic or evidence or very good arguments you might have, they're prepared already with something which means they're not listening. And what I've found is the only way to actually disarm that rhetorical radioactive core is to, to listen, to stop and to listen to, you know, at the Thanksgiving dinner next week, you just, <laughs> the uncle, you just listen. Because if you come prepared with arguments, they will have been as part of their, and it's not just Fox News, it's, it's the Facebook algorithms and Instagram and all of the things that circulate their own views back to them at higher and higher volumes that allows them to stop listening. And so the only way I've, I've discovered is sort of like, <laughs> let's stop this, is to just really like let them, let the steam blow off and listen and listen. And then you can begin to like have these kinds of conversations. But it's difficult to listen sometimes. <laughs> I wondered, we've, we've talked about institutions. I wondered if any of you have anything to say about small groups, about the power of small groups. There have been several books recently, Bob Beckman's book, about how, how small groups can collaborate and rally and, and really have an impact. Um, any thoughts there? It just reminds me of um, of, uh, God, I'm trying to, I'm struggling for the term, but basically the, the idea is that uh, science strives for universal laws and universal techniques and, and so forth. However, um, with more attention being paid to, say, microclimates and micro this and that, um, 
basically an, an awareness of, of complex systems, we see that local, uh, local dynamics or local situations are very specific and the scientific thing to do is to just come up with something that works there. Um, studying everything we can about it rather than trying to impose some general way to do every neighborhood. Each neighborhood is different. So I think that's becoming acknowledged as a way of doing science for the last at least 30 years and here and there. And in personal medicine, personalized medicine is one version of that. Um, so that comes to mind as like uh, um, definitely a cogent way to do things. Conceptually speaking, <laughs> now actually carrying that out, implementing that, um, I, I know nothing there. I'm, I'm all ears for that. I mean, certainly we have network theory where we can model how ideas spread, and uh, many times it's counterintuitive how certain small groups can spread these ideas, and um, you know, having students learn to model these and figure out how to spread ideas um, is great. I mean, when you're on social media, you know, you talk about the role of intellectuals. There are intellectuals who have all the followers and have, who have these massive networks. And it can seem kind of like those are the people with the megaphone. Um, on the other hand, I kind of wonder how you can be on social media all day and still have time to think deeply. I'm not quite sure. They manage it somehow, but it, it does seem um, like it, it really won't work. Um, but, you know, one of the things that's been interesting that we do uh, with students working on social media is you'll see these people who seem to have a lot of power, but in fact they're following a very small network. And you're not really looking at those uh, main megaphones, you're looking at the small network. Uh, so, for example, right now our students are looking at uh, the very few numbers of people that AOC uh, and uh, Marjorie Green yeah, Green Taylor are following, and in fact, there are a few people that they both follow, and there's this kind of network behind them, right? And so, what are these smaller networks doing, and how could we maybe w be watching these smaller networks uh, that are joining people who are really different? Um, so, I think that there are we're beginning to develop ways to look at these smaller networks. Um, it, but it's really kind of in an infancy and understand how smaller networks might spread ideas or have some kind of impact. But you live in a smaller network, and I think that's one example. You know, if you think about the way the world is, the, college, the divide between the college-educated world and the non-college-educated world that we've seen in these elections, the college-educated world are going to wonderful colleges and wonderful private schools and wonderful magnet schools where all of these progressive ideas are just part of life. You know, um, certainly when I hear kids talk about their friends, I have no way of knowing if their friends, what race their friends are, whether their friends have two moms, two dads, one mom and a, an Asian kid. It's just not interesting to these kids. And certain kinds of ideas of racial tolerance and religious tolerance, they don't believe in tolerance because they don't think there's anything to tolerate. They're just people. I think this is a fantastic change that's happened in the course of all of our lifetimes, where it's unimaginable that it wouldn't be at least worthy of mention. Not, not discrimination, but just of mention. I think the same thing is true with um, environmental attitudes, with all sorts of things. The world, coupled with scientific advances in medicine and technology, the world is a fantastically wonderful place in very small privileged groups, such as 
you know, an elite tiny college that you guys live in. And I think that's where a lot of change is possible. The problem is it's not spreading out. And in, we have this going on at the same time, that there's this fantastic tilt to the right and to really reactionary, very primitive ideas. Uh, I think that's part of the challenge. There are also yeah. some other elements, you know, so we're in a county that is red, that voted mm -hmm. Trump, um, and are part of a network there as well that's very different. And it's very interesting to watch that environment because there are plenty of people who live their rebel lives, who've never gone on an airplane, who choose to take uh, less prestigious jobs, to have time to raise their children, to spend time every Sunday for family dinner. Um, and then you have this other value system, which is work 80 hours a week, be successful on an international scale. Um, and, you know, it's also easy to see this other culture, and it actually reminds me very much of my experience working uh, in Prague under the Czech and Slovak uh, military, right, uh, after the revolution. And yes, there were problems with communism. I also worked with soldiers who'd been kicked out because they had spoken out against the Velvet Revolution. Um, but on the other hand, people emphasized family. All these things now that we know are really important for happiness, right? Uh, spending time in the country, hiking, very little money, right? But uh, friends, connections, family, some of these things that um, our vision of success has kind of thrown away as, as being important. Um, so somehow we have to figure out um, how to have a life that has all of these values, yeah. right? There's, a, there's an article, there were some statistics floating around about uh, 20, 30 years ago, the average uh, college male had about three, five friends, and now they have one, zero friends. Mm -hmm. So, and I think part of it is technology uh, has atomized us. The opportunities when you jump to a different city to get a promotion, you leave, leave everyone behind. And so your idea about uh, organizing on a, on a smaller scale for, as agents of change, not as hapless individuals who can't move the needle in any possible way, and not as a broad-based, overly ambitious kind of, we'll change it on a national level from the top down, but as small, small organizations. And you asked about an example. I would say, again, this is the power of capitalism. When you get energized people in a startup that all are on the same page, it's incredible what they can accomplish. I mean, what they can invent, how much, how productive they can be. And you can see that on small medical teams, or you could see it in Silicon Valley. You could see it, you know, uh, people starting, uh, we, you know, starting a a, a, a newspaper, anything they put their minds to. The problem is, is how do you trans, how do you scale that up so it starts to affect the wider culture and not just the immediate vicinity around them? There was a, um, your remarks about the uh, Czech Republic reminded me of my visit to Moscow in uh, 1988 in the waning, uh, well, in the last years of the Soviet Union when Perestroika made it possible to, to, to meet with people. And one of the things that I noticed was that the still oppressive nature of, of Soviet reality really created a very vibrant uh, culture of personal friendship in small groups. Uh, it, was, it was really, you know, I, the, the way I expressed it at the time was that, that whereas in, in, in the West, uh, in the West, communism, in the West, the, the, the market economy had destroyed the bourgeoisie, that is, bourgeois values. Whereas those, those values of the like, bourgeois utopians around 1900 had been kind of encapsulated uh, 
by the Soviet state. And what you were left with, you couldn't really be an entrepreneur, you couldn't organize politically, you couldn't dissent, there weren't even uh, token uh, opposition parties as there were in, in the former uh, German Democratic Republic. But what you could do is meet with your friends, where you could pursue photography, you could pursue art, you could discuss philosophy. In that sense, the, the private life of the Soviet intelligentsia was, it was a, a weird sort of utopia. And that, that impression really stayed with me on, on visiting people in their apartments. Great. So we, we know what our future is. <laughs> <laughs> have to really champion fashions to get involved. Yeah, I know, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. One of the difficulties of this is that, I mean, in all of the things that we just imagined about the power of startups and the energy of like what what these what small groups of people can do is that quite often we're talking about the sort of elite um, powers that, that sort of generate, you know, the startup in Silicon Valley is a very good example. You know, it's like a lot of energy, a lot of excitement. We have this idea, we're going to implement it. And I'm sure that that's almost like a, like a spiritual experience for many of those people. It's very powerful. It feels like the cosmos is, is working through them. But, you know, for the... 18-year-old factory worker in China who's actually going to work to implement those particular ideas, the, the excitement just isn't there, you know? Like, it's just not, like, but, but that's actually the same thing. We're talking about the same thing, right? So I think there's actually a pretty good direct relation between the college-educated voters and the non-college-educated voters and the kind of work that those people are engaged in and the fears about work disappearing in the United States because of offshoring, the fears about multiculturalism because of what it does to jobs for white, you know, American working-class voters. It, the power of work as something that we all require, as of, of work that allows us to flourish and to, to feel uh, like we're a, a, a person, a soul, like that that's, work is so important to that. It's as important as whatever hobbies or, you know, and arts or things that one pursues, I think. And that's one of our dilemmas here is that work in the United States has become either uh, rarefied and uh, sort of information work or it's dehumanizing, humiliating work or it's been directed offshore. It's also, uh, has only for a long time has been a big difference between a European and American society. The, the French are really, um, don't know what to make of Americans kind of announcing what they, what they do for a living when they're, when they're introduced. And in, 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 in Europe, in Europe you're, that's not what really defines you. What defines you is your, you know, your, your interests, your, your hobbies, your, you know, your, your reading. It's, it's really your, your whole personality and, and your, your job is something that just lets you make a living. Yeah, I'm a little bit with Max Weber on this, that we do assume that work will fulfill some kind of spiritual role, and, you know, I wonder how really possible that is for most of the young people, and when you talk about students and say, find your passion, I feel like we're kind of insisting to them that they find a job that will fulfill this spiritual function, mm -hmm. and it might be better to create a quality of life that doesn't depend on work to provide so much of that for the vast majority of people. It seems to me there is also this issue of using fear in order to get something done. That uh, 
parents use fear with their kids to have them behave the right way. And it seems to me the media and so on use fear to get us to do the right thing. So they make uh, us be afraid of COVID so we get vaccinated. And they feel that the more they make us afraid, the more they gave us the number of people who have died, the number of people in ICUs, how we got to get all the military boats around New York City so that we have enough hospital beds, then we will do the right thing. Stay home, put a mask. And the same is true, for example, with climate change, that uh, if we don't do it, the end is there, we are all going to. But why isn't it possible to also look at it differently and say, Science has always been able to make progress, and we will also make progress in terms of understanding climate change, and we will institute the things that have to be instituted in order not to have climate change. We have had epidemics before in the world, we've had pandemics before in the world, we have survived it, and we will survive this too. Important that you do this or this or that, but rather than using anything positive and reassuring, it seems that the conviction is that getting people frightened gets you to your goal much better than feeling, but then reassuring them. There's also the fact that when people have tried publications that do this, that, that present the, the most hopeful possible news, they, they are not commercially successful. Nobody buys them. <laughs> I mean, that uh, made me think of what you were telling us a bit earlier, uh, that some of these uh, programs that kids go on TikTok and so on, that they're designed to create distress because distress makes you stay on the site longer. Therefore, they can have more ads and therefore they can have better revenue than if they didn't make you distressed. Yeah, yeah, so what they do is they constantly do A-B testing. They'll expose this demographic to this particular variation and the same demographic to this, this one. And they'll say, oh, this creates more engagements, taking us more revenue. So, and what they find is that when you elicit negative emotions like anger, jealousy, hatred, they will stay and they will generate more revenue for Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And if you make them happy, they'll go out and play with their dogs or their friends and they'll lose revenue. So it's all of the economic, and it's, it's again, it's, there's no evil genius, it's just the algorithm optimizing for revenue. And where were the people trained who, who devised these algorithms? Probably applied mathematicians. And they come from the universities. They, they, they are part of this expansion of natural science and social science. In fact, one of the most interesting things about uh, conservatism, about Reaganism, was that, that Ronald Reagan originally did not really care that much about what was happening at Berkeley, but his campaign backers uh, signed a contract with some you know, social psychologists in, in the Cal State system, and they did surveys, and they revealed that California uh, working class voters were really upset that these students were, were shutting down this great university that they paid their taxes for. So Reagan made that a pillar of his campaign, was elected governor, and, and, and you know the rest. So here, here was here was a, my, my specialty is unintended consequence. So here was this this unintended consequence of 1950s and 1960s liberalism expanding this wonderful university system. Uh, kind of, uh, it was it was really like like it, it 
it created its own its own nemesis uh, <laughs> indirectly. Oh, Hegel, where are you? Please? Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yes. This is the uh, this is the thing that interdisciplinarity is really great. We should humanities sciences. What that would do would be to more quickly make a ruthless, a better, a more effective game to, you know, you could do this with everything. Oh, and more psychological insight. Then we can really go after these. It, it's being done already. It was, it was, you know, it's, it's, it was done by the, uh, you know, Cambridge Analytica. It was all done by all those companies. So then, let's go back to my first point. We can't hand over the framing of this issue, how to approach it to the same people who can harvest it so well. Uh, and so who else is there? I mean, what else is there? Uh, what is there? The artists. The artists, right. And of course, they can be sort of like sucked into the machine as well after they get, you know, popular. Is there anyone left? Anyway, that's my, that's where I want to is there any other modality to think about things? Um, I'll quote Isabel Stangers here, who's a, who's a great uh, intellectual. Um, uh, she basically sort of wants to bring back Gaia and say Gaia is an intrusion, the way the old Greek gods were before they could, before they became judges for good and evil. It's just a force of nature, and it, it's not after you. It doesn't want to hurt you. It's not into vengeance, but it's there. And that's real. There's going to be no profit from trying to do the best you can while the crisis goes down because Gaia doesn't care. Gaia is just going to do that thing that it's going to do when things get out of balance and intemperate the way we're going. So it's a different frame of thinking. It's kind of mythological, uh, but it's also uh, terribly effective and convincing. And finally, because it's holistic, it, it doesn't uh, advocate going for the parts first the way we usually do. As soon as you go for the parts, you've kind of shrunk it into something different than what it was. You can make those parts very effective because we know how to do that, but then you've lost the whole. So coming in with Gaia and staying with the whole as a lead concept of framing becomes uh, one way to, to begin talking about the alternative, I think. One reason for the uh, delay in addressing climate change was that in the 1960s and 70s, people saw it coming, but there was also this idea of the Earth as a homeostatic system. And so the, the Earth would find a way to, uh, to, to kind of neutralize that. And so we didn't have to worry. Everything is, everything is, is going to uh, kind of work itself out through this, through this balancing system. And you know, that turned out to be wrong. But no, it turned out to be true. It's just that the way the Earth's taking care of it is eradicating humanity. Like the Earth will return to well, the, the, we're going to be here, the earth will be here for another how many billion years it will also, return to yeah. yeah also also the utopian socialist <laughs> Fourier, uh, believed that that uh, climate change was going to happen as a result of human activity and it was going to be great it was we're going to live in a new a new world where uh, not only would the, the lion you know, lie down with the lamb but there would be an anti-lion that would that would not eat like that would be totally totally vegan or something I mean he, he really he thought of, you know he, he, he thought of climate change as something really really benign and, and moderating the you know all this cold weather that he'd been uh, he'd been experiencing in France. 
Well, unfortunately, we know otherwise. Um, how about some questions from our audience? If you'll just line up here at the microphone. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah, it is on. So I, I like the point that you mentioned about capitalism, and I think I'm a proponent of that, but obviously I do believe that it's supposed to be constrained and directed. And obviously, I mean, capitalism with human nature, it could be a very un unrestricted, could be bad combination. You know, greed, fame, power, so on and so forth. But I think another point that I wanted to maybe share and maybe ask is, is we talked about small groups, but Everything is about politicians. It's about really leadership. And as we can see today, you know, in order for us to create change, while we have the power of small groups, I mean, you have to have power. And that's go to direct, uh, you know, this kind of like power of change. And unfortunately, you see what happens to capitalism and power. Who are today in power? Which people are truly going to <laughs> to be in that in that uh, in that area? And unfortunately, it's not it's not so optimistic in that regards. I mean, I wish there would be some kind of like international outsider body of philosophers, uh, lawyers, uh, psychologists, and really wise people that sit together that really think what is the the right direction that that the company need to go, I mean, the company, the, the global things. But again, if there is no money or there is no leadership that really gonna say, okay, let, let's have that, what's happened? Yeah, I think there's two solutions that hope, they give me hope. One is, is a, a, I do believe, a global awakening to this. I mean, this whole Helix Center is an example of a small group coming together as agents of change. And I think those are absolutely necessary. There's also this broadening. We see this across all socioeconomic, all education levels in our students. We realize that the system is not functioning well and it's continually degrading and there's no future in this. And at some point, you know, Chachascu, Romania, there'll be like an awakening where people will stop clapping for the guy on the balcony. On the other hand of that, not to get too revolutionary, is economic self-enlightenment. So there are billionaires who have uh, doomsday bunkers in New Zealand and all these other places. And I hope even if it's nothing other than enlightened self-interest, they'll realize that's not a world worth living in. Even if I have billions and I have shock collars on all my guards to control them, that's not a world I want to live in. And so, again, I have to, you have to kind of maybe draw from the humanities rather than the mathematical model to have a hope and inspiration that humans I really hope so, but you know, at the same time, I mean, we are in totally different age. Mm -hmm. The technology is so powerful, even on individual basis. I find myself sitting at, sitting at home and feel addicted, like you know, all these <laughs> examples that really captures us so much. And I really hope that it's not going to be too late. I'm optimistic in by nature, but you know, yeah. you can see the power that exists that really driving us. Yeah, and I mean, if I were a betting man, I would. I would uh, see the, the choke point, the Fermi paradox, why there are no advanced civilizations, because any organically evolved uh, uh, organism will self-extinguish because their technologies will outpace their 
morality or the ability to control their own impulse, base impulse. But again, we're humans, and I mean, you look at art, you look at the great things humans have done, and how we've survived in the nuclear age to this point. So uh, you have to kind of be an optimist in the face of uh, you know, eating from the tree of knowledge. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Well, I have a terrible trick question. So if you don't know me, I'm Mark Mitten, and I'm a kind of a nerdy magician. So I have a trick question for all of you, and, and I really mean this. Like, so how many of you on the panel know what the Highlands Group or the Highlands Forum is? Just by a show of hands. Hmm. Okay, so it's one. I think okay. you told me about it last. Oh right, I just right. <laughs> no, but this is why I brought it. I bring it up right in discussions like this, especially even related to your question. It just says your question before, John. Um, and then the second question: How many of you know what I mean by the letters B I S? So my, my point is... This is magic? Or it, no, it's the, called the Bank of International Settlements. Oh, okay? Right. Yeah. So, and, and, um, so my, my point is, is that we discuss things like communism and capitalism outside... Of, I mean, the biggest lesson I can treat, teach you from magic is that if one trick has ever fooled anyone ever, it means that you can be, you can be fooled. You can be deceived. And so context is as important as anything we discuss. So if you're, so the Highlands Group or the Highlands Forum is basically leads, it's a very loose kind of organization formed in the 90s that leads private-public partnerships in the areas of the military-industrial complex. The Bank of International Settlements was formed by a treaty in 1930, which organized the payment of the, the, the settlements of the Treaty of Versailles, the, the War Guilt Clause, Article 231. So, so they're both kind of essential. They've been running the dollar since 1971 with a thing called the Basel Accords. I'm just saying these are very basic things. So if you're going to talk about communism and capitalism and you don't know what's running the world, <laughs> then we're in trouble. And, and I just think it's just a wake-up call that we all need. And if, if things are not going to be run by governments anymore, if they're going to be run by private-public partnerships and we don't study those, then our discussions don't have a rudder and we're all in trouble. Uh, by the way, I am a member of the Highlands Forum. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> okay, good. So the, I, I, would, I think they would be very happy to learn that they're, they're running the world. No, I don't mean by that, but you know what I mean. No, no, I, no, I, know, a lot, I know that people, I, I, you know, I, I know what kind of an organization it is. I know, the, I know the founder. I've spoken at a number of their meetings. And I don't know all of the other things that, that they or, or, or members of it, of it do, but I, I can say I, you know, I, I'm on their... I'm on their listserv, and and I've contributed uh, items to their to their reading lists, and, and it, so I, I think that I, I think that that uh, there could be a lot that I don't that I don't know. But all I'm saying is that that it's important to to um, you know to have a, a an I don't know the Bank of International Settlements either. So for all I know, they could be they could be running the world. But but I'm I'm just saying that that the uh, the, the founder of the Highlands Forum, who, who is a friend and who is, who is not well now, I think he would, it would be distressing to him to, to have the forum characterized as... as, uh, as well, I'm not saying running the world. What I'm saying is, if you're having this discussion and you're not talking about those groups, because as you know, it's 
the, the Highlands Forum is organized in a very interesting way with groups of 25 to 30 people, all in different areas, right? So, and, and you know, Mr. O'Neill did an amazing thing. It's an amazingly insightful thing, and it does gear up the military industrial complex for the future. But I'm just saying, if we're gonna have these discussions and, and not understand these basic organizational you know, groups and organizations, then it's very hard to affect change. It goes back to, um, what should you characterize? Hope with it, that... Um, <laughs> hope in the face of knowledge. <laughs> hope in the Where face of knowledge and also with your students feeling empowered or not. So if all of their professors and all of the people talking about communism and, um, and uh, socialism and conservatism and, and all those things don't know about basic banking structures in the world and how the New York Fed interacts with the Bank of International Settlements and vice versa, then I'd suggest that's misguided. And, and at least it's not going to be able to affect any kind of change. And, and with the Hans Forum group, what it suggests is that, you know, if, if you don't know that, like, Lockheed Martin through Lidos organizes the, um, the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, then it's kind of important to know how Lockheed Martin, what, the, what is the relationship with Lidos biologicals? When you flew here today, you probably worked through, walked through a Lidos gate. So these things are very practical. It's just good to know where we live. What's the context? That's what I'm saying. And so it'd be great. Maybe we should do an informal session afterwards for 30 minutes on what you think the Highlands Forum is and what Mr. O'Neill was trying to do. I think that would affect more change than just discussions where that are not grounded in the actual uh, world that we're in. Mark is a magician, of course, and I'll just say one thing about this aspect of what is uh, that I think what fascinates Mark here and that what I think of is sort of a, a subcurrent of what we've been describing is attention, the importance of attention in our society that, you know, magicians thrive on misdirection of attention, on selective change blindness and what we're not seeing. And of course, the attention economy is what drives, you know, fear anger, the things that keep eyeballs on a given, the algorithms are what generate that kind of attention. So it's, it's the, I think whatever we do, if it's going to be through small groups is probably a good way of like beginning to diversify attention on a larger scale. Uh, I just want to say two quick things that uh, capitalism, uh, corporations, is a legal system that works for if you want to be in business. If you're a small entrepreneur and you want to go about it and you're not incorporated, you can, a person can come into your building, trip, and sue you for everything you have. You're forced to be in that capitalist corporate system if you want to survive and deal with these situations, which is what I think you were talking about. The other element I want to say is that um, uh, mindfulness is extremely important, especially if you do not want to be subjected to the chatter of the left side of your brain. There's a right side of the brain, it's the creative side. Until that left brain chatter is understood, you'll never access your childlike mindfulness qualities that are from the right side of your brain. That's all I want to say. I'd like to put that in a slightly streamlined way. Fear makes people stupid. And, sure. and I think what you're talking about is the best way to communicate to people to scare them to death. You scare people to death and they regress to their worst selves. 
Yeah. Or they get angry. Or they get angry. Or they burn crosses. Or they can't think straight. And I think every teacher knows that. If you if you shame people, if you scare them, you don't get good results. You have to keep scaring them. Too. Like, no, it's true. Like, if you, if you give someone, if you motivate someone by fear into going to do something, if you don't keep scaring them, that'll wear off at a certain point. It isn't lasting change to sort of motivate through fear, I think. Right. Yeah, you know, well, exactly. <laughs> oh, by the way, the last, the last question I raised a very interesting point about, about capitalism and the, the, how technology changes capitalism. There was an article I read recently about how independent uh, service stations can't afford the instruments that they need to, uh, to repair the, the newest uh, high-tech cars. So everybody's you know, really forced to go to a dealer. And you know, Tesla, or of course, Elon Musk is, the, is like the kind of prime example of everything we've been talking about. Tesla does not even allow any kind of repairs by, by independence. So it's, it's a, a form of capitalism of, of, of concentration and corporatization. So I no, I understood a lot of what motivated the uh, conversation today was what we're going through these days. You know, the pandemic, a political turmoil, uh, the war in Ukraine, um, and of course we can't blame all those things on capitalism. Uh, it plays a role, with uh, as you've all elaborated really very well. But I think we know that the world's gone through phases where it seems everything's falling apart. You mentioned 1914, you talked about the Ludlow uh, incident, uh, World War II, other pandemics. Uh, we know there's this other economic idea of creative destruction that Schumpeter mentioned, and I thought it was interesting that didn't come up as part of the conversation. I wonder whether, if there is creative destruction, people respond to these periods of chaos and catastrophe, and then so Bill would like to think we build a better world from it. Are these small units, the small units that we're talking about that might play a role in creatively solving some of our problems, are they struggling to do so now because of social media and other things? Are there things that are impeding our ability to be resilient and build a better world? Yes. I, I think there are like uh, several. One thing is the what we talked about, the escalating costs. The, you can't get off the right track or you'll be penalized. And so I think in the, the generation of our students, they're less willing to take a risk. They're less willing to just get on a plane and go to Europe or Asia and do something offbeat or start a company or try to become a musician. They all want to work for Goldman Sachs. They all want to go to Wall Street. Not they, they go to tech. Well, not a lot of them. A lot of them. That's one thing. The other thing I would say is that creative destruction requires a certain fluidity. And so when you have an entrenched monolith, uh, monopolistic power that basically sucks up all the space, it makes it a fool's errand to. So I remember at the time Microsoft was dominating the valley, and the talk was like, "Oh, well, what's your what's your Microsoft strategy? What are you going to do if Microsoft does this?" And so it's like it stifles innovation. And so when you have an incumbent, and it doesn't have to be another private sector, it could be the government or some pseudo government uh, agency that has just you know, legal, uh, governmental, political cover that you can never pierce, you know, and so regulatory uh, access. So 
you know, there, there are certain things that uh, require that creative structure uh, destruction to occur. They are saying with all the sorry uh, with all the layoffs in tech, however, that this may be at the start of a new round of amazing new companies, right? Because there's so few of these large. Or it could make people so afraid that they want to join a big company and pay the rent and the college, <laughs> the college tuition. Uh, uh, that point reminded me of, of how, in a way, the depression was actually a more hopeful time than ours. And one of the reasons for that on creative destruction was that, uh, for example, Edmund Wilson and his friends were able to rent a townhouse in the East 50s uh, for $50 a month. So New York was actually a very attractive place for a young bohemian at the time. And that was partly a result of the, of the destruction of real estate values in the, in the Depression. And, and there, were, uh, there are economists at the University of Maryland who calculated, they looked at, at the, the decades of the most important inventions economically. And they found that the 1930s were the most fruitful time for invention. There were lots of young people who had ideas for solving the problems that had been created. And so it was a great time for entrepreneurship. And the reason we don't recognize it as such is that many of those, for example, uh, Xerox, uh, you know, Xerox copying were really not developed commercially until after the Second World War. But if you look at their origins, and if you look at the origins of classic designs like the aviator sunglasses that our, our president wears or the, the snail dispenser of scotch tape. Uh, the, so many of these classics really date from the depression when a lot of people, especially younger people, were seizing the opportunity that the destruction uh, caused to plan a new future. I think that's a great note to end on. It means that there's hope. <laughs> I thank you all very much.